Well, you know, some words or phrases, well, just a mere mention of them that bring a, a flood of, of thoughts, connections, visualizations instantly to mind. And sometimes those visualizations, those word associations change over time. Sometimes not over time, sometimes suddenly in a momentous event. Before 2001, if you said 9-11, some guys would think you were talking about a Porsche. They'd want to know Carrera, Carrera S, 4S, what are you talking about here? If you say 9-11, others might think, surely you mean 911, the emergency number? That's how we say it. We don't say 9-11, we say 911. But since September 2001, when we say 9-11, those three numbers bring all kinds of memories and implications and changes to mind. Security, wars, loss, resolve, on and on we could go. The same with Pearl Harbor. Before 1941, if you say Pearl Harbor... If those who hear it know what you're talking about at all, they think of a little lagoon in Hawaii. Some might know it's a naval base. To a sailor, they think of it as that famously coveted assignment that they've been applying for for a number of years now. Ironically so. But ever since December 1941, Pearl Harbor isn't, it isn't a place, it's an event. An event that changed everything. It thrust the U.S. into World War II. The war was now personal to us. In fact, without that word, Pearl Harbor, meaning what it does to us today, we wouldn't hear many other words like we do today in the same way. Normandy, Nagasaki, Hiroshima. That's not just geography, is it? Those words have changed. If you know anything about atomic bomb history, I say little boy, fat man. That's not a fat guy and his chubby son. Those are bombs, right? Words transformed in a moment. There's no going back. Well, these are all rather negative or unfortunate examples. In an infinitely more happy way, 1 Peter 2 is loaded with words and phrases and concepts that come from the Old Testament temple. But as we'll see, these words, with the coming of the Messiah Jesus and his new covenant, these words take on new meaning. These words have new weight. They have different and greater significance. These are words that have been transformed and injected with infinitely greater purposes than what came before. Look down in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, if you have a Bible with you. And we'll read this section of 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10 this morning. As I do so, look for those Old Testament words and phrases and concepts repeated again and again. Peter writes, As you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, 
And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The Old Testament temple began really as a giant tent in the book of Exodus. As the people were led by God through the wilderness, eventually to the promised land, as they traveled, they would set up camp. And as they set up camp, they would set up a tent for God. It's called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a place for God's presence, which sounds kind of nice and quaint. God traveled with them. He camped with them. They set up a tent. God went in. God stayed with them. It all sounds quaint if you don't know better, but, but the tabernacle was a place of utter holiness. No one but priests could enter into the inner parts of it. No one but the high priest could enter into the most holy place. It was a place for the sacrifices. Sacrifices for sin, sacrifices of animals, sacrifices with blood. It was anything but quaint. It was a place of utter holiness and blood. Fast forward 400 plus years and you have Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. They're now in the promised land. They now have lots and lots of riches thanks to King David and Solomon and the conquests that have taken place before. Solomon's temple was built to be the permanent house for God's presence and worship. To function like the tabernacle did but in a, a, an official and beautiful way. It was staggeringly massive. Just Google it. You can see some pictures or sketches, rather, about it, and it's amazing to see. Constructed out of huge marble blocks. Now, you have to know this, that uh, not just in the construction of the temple, but in all ancient construction, the beginning, the cornerstone was crucial. The cornerstone was the first block put in place, And it functions something like our levels do today, like our plumb lines do today, like a a chalk line might do today. The cornerstone had to be perfect in its dimensions and its shape. It had to be tested. It had to be approved. There were some potential cornerstones that would get examined, but then they'd get rejected because they weren't good cornerstones. They weren't going to make a straight wall. They weren't going to be steady. They weren't flat as they needed to be in the bottom. It needed to be perfect because the walls would be determined based on the plumb line and the level of this one stone. But what Peter's telling us in 1 Peter 2 is that God's plan is not that Solomon's temple or the one that came after it in Jesus' time would be the permanent forever temple. Peter's saying that in Jesus, God is doing a brand new thing. It's a new thing, but one that you could have seen and maybe should have seen, anticipated, 
in the Old Testament itself. That's why Peter quotes from the Old Testament three times in these short verses. They're probably indented in your Bible or in italics or something like that. Or There's quotation marks, something to set it apart and let you know that it's from the Old Testament. A lot of times Bibles will have a, a little footnote at the, the beginning of it or the end of it and usually a letter. And so you, you look at that letter and you, you go to the middle column and it tells you where it is in the Bible. That's a handy thing to use and a, a good way to study the Bible. We'll do a little bit of that today. But the point is this for now that Peter gives us three different quotes from the Old Testament to show us that this was the plan all along. The plan all along was that Jesus would come as God's chosen one, as a different kind of priest, making a different kind of temple. In fact, he himself is the temple. He is God's presence among his people. Remember, the temple equaled God's presence. The temple equaled sacrifices. Jesus is God's presence in our midst. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice through which we enter into God's presence. And he's adding to this temple with people. People who stand on him. People who are like bricks. People who weren't formally God's people. But now in Christ they are. Through faith in Jesus they are. And now they're a part of a whole new kind of priesthood that's doing different kind of sacrifices than used to be done you see those are all old words but they're now injected with brand new meaning and significance so what we want to do today is to better understand the old better understand the new better understand the transition and the implications of it all on your sermon notes page on the back of your bulletin you'll see our outline for today Unlike most weeks, these points this week are meant to make up a sentence. You can read them from start to the end. They, they spring one from the other. But they don't follow the order of the passage. The verses in 1 Peter, are, are, they have category and structure to it. I'll tell you if you're interested. The order and flow of our passage goes something like this. Verses 4 to 5 are the summary of the whole thing. It's like a it's like a giant horse pill of the passage and gives it all up front. But then verses 6 through 8 of the next section, they go back to the Old Testament to show the anticipation of what's now happened with Jesus. And then verses 9 through 11 return to an earlier theme of the identity and the calling of God's people, those who now don't reject the cornerstone but have received the cornerstone. That's the structure and flow of these verses, but there are all kinds of themes scattered in each of these sections. So I want to break it into seven categories, if I can, today. Oh, and one other qualification. We'll just skim the last few. We'll just skim the last few, and we'll come back to some of the concepts we're seeing in this passage this week. We'll see those some next week. So let's dig in. What does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? Well, first, Jesus is the cornerstone by ungodly rejection. By ungodly rejection. We could say Jesus is the cornerstone despite ungodly rejection. And that'd be true, but it would miss a point that Peter is making. It's actually by the people's rejection that Jesus becomes the cornerstone. 
Verse 4 says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He's saying something very similar to what he says in verse 7. But in verse 7, he quotes Psalm 118. Regarding those who don't believe in Jesus, he quotes Psalm 118, which says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's he saying? He's painting the picture. Jesus is a living cornerstone, not a real one. But imagine the builders of the old temple looking at a potential cornerstone, either green lighting it or red lighting it, either accepting it or rejecting it. And the builders, now to use this metaphor here, the builders are the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time. They've rejected him. Jesus is a rejected cornerstone because they didn't think he fit. They didn't think he was straight. They didn't think he was the real deal. They didn't think he was the promised one, the one to come. And they not only rejected him with indifference or something like that, but they rejected him to his crucifixion. That's what it means here when it says they rejected him. Yeah, they rejected him before the crucifixion, but it was all building up and up and up until he was murdered. But no worries, God sees Jesus for who he is and for what he is, and he's chosen and he's precious, and God's opinion is the only one that matters. But Peter sees the rejection of Jesus and God's acceptance of Jesus as anticipated in the Old Testament. One, because he quotes Psalm 118. Two, because in verse 8 he quotes Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah 8.14, we see that there's a stone of stumbling in a rock of offense. Peter quotes that and then explains, they stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Now, this would be a good place for us to kind of hit pause and do a little theology lesson because this is a key place in God's word showing us God's sovereignty and human responsibility together. You may have flinched a little bit when I read, as they were destined to do. But you didn't flinch probably at some other words that were mentioned earlier. Some words about their responsibility, those who've rejected him. Remember, in verse 4, the living stone is rejected. In verse 7, men do not believe, and the builders rejected. In verse 8, yes, they stumbled, but they stumbled because they were offended and they disobeyed the word. We don't stumble over those kind of words. We don't get tripped up over them. But Scripture tells us what we already know, what we already assume, that there is something of genuine responsibility. People do things because they want to do things. And yet, verse 8 ends with the other side of the coin, as they were destined to do. Both are true. Mysteriously so, both are true. Human responsibility is real and genuine and true, and God isn't kind of sovereign or just sovereign over the big things. Peter makes this point in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching, and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. 
Oh, it was God's plan, so they didn't really sin in the matter. No. No, it was pure wickedness. Oh, but it was pure wickedness, and God didn't see that coming. It was so unfortunate. God went, oops, I know, i got something up my sleeve. The resurrection. No, no. Acts 4 does the same thing as the early church prays. They pray, truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. See a lot of people in there, right? A lot of decisions, a lot of dynamics going on. They all came together on a human level, and from a divine level, they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In technical theological terms, we call this compatibilism. Not cannibalism, compatibilism. These things are compatible. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility are compatible. They're true, mysterious. Yes, where one begins and the other one ends, how it works exactly, we don't know. But we know that they're true because passages like this spell both out at the same time in the same place. Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will and do of his good pleasure. Both are true. And they're not that uncommon in scripture, these kinds of things. The Bible, who is it written by? If you know the Bible, you know the Bible was written by man and God. How? Like men just fell asleep and they woke up and a quill pen scrolled past the page and It was beautiful. They read it afterwards and were as surprised as we were when we read it the first time. No. They thought of that stuff. And yet, Scripture tells us that every word of Scripture is as though it is breathed out by God. It's His Word. You take Jesus and His dual natures. He's both man and God. And He's fully God and fully man. You say, well, that sounds like one plus one equals one. Because He's one person right yes two natures one person how's that work i don't know but it's it's true i know we could give more nuance to it than that we could talk about it more you can read big books on this but but at the end of the day the best books still say yeah it's a mystery we don't know exactly the trinity's like that it's three it's one both are true Now, all of that is important. It's not just a a theological rabbit trail. It's important for our passage because the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus was the means by which Jesus became the cornerstone. And it's important for our Christian lives because this is the case in everything. Like when Joseph was thrown to the pit and sold into slavery by his brothers and lied lied about to the dad that he was dead and eaten by an animal. Later, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was in it. It was the means by which I got elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh. It was the plan all along. And yet, shame on you for doing it. That's compatibilism. And that's what's going on in your life when someone's a jerk. That's sinful. And you're sinful too. And somehow God's in it. He's using it. And you can trust him. And you can heed him in it. But back to Jesus. Remember how the crowd at the cross mocked him? They they said, you said you could destroy the temple and in three days build it again. 
Why don't you come down from the cross? Let's start there. Get yourself off the cross if you're going to build the temple in three days. But remember, the Apostle John tells us that Jesus was referring metaphorically to his body when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. The irony is that they were destroying his temple right then as they said, you said destroy the temple and you'll rebuild it in three days. They were destroying the temple and unknowingly so that he could raise it up the third day. That was the plan all along. Jesus is the cornerstone by ungodly rejection, but he's also, secondly, the cornerstone by God's design. These go hand in hand. We've already hinted at it. Go to verse 6, if you would, of 1 Peter 2. This here is a quotation from Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. Peter tells us, it stands in Scripture, and then the quote. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. That's God speaking. A cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, why did Peter quote this? Well, for one, he knew it to be true. He was at the Mount of Transfiguration, one of those classic mouth in, uh, foot-in-mouth moments for Peter. He knew firsthand that Jesus was chosen and precious by the Father, Because Jesus was up on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, the stalwarts of the Old Testament. And they're talking and glory is glowing and all that. And and Peter says these brilliant understated words. Jesus, it's good for us to be here, right? Like, you taught some good stuff and feeding 5,000, that was good. But it's really good that we're here, isn't it? He says, how about, he goes further, how about... I build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and you guys just make this permanent. We'll make this a place. People can come. We'll charge some money, perhaps. And that's when God the Father cracks in from the sky and says, This is my beloved Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You're not going to put Elijah and Moses on par with him. No one from the Old Testament, nor angels of old, This is the one. He's the chosen one. My beloved son, listen to him. Well, Peter's quoting Isaiah 28 now and saying, yeah, I remember, he's the chosen and precious cornerstone. But there's uh, another reason why Peter might quote Isaiah 28. You've got to know something of the context of Isaiah 28. When you quote something from the Old Testament, a lot of times New Testament writers are really pointing us back to a broader context, not just one little phrase. So in Isaiah 28, the northern kingdom's already been taken away. The southern kingdom, Judah, is smug and proud and sinful, and prophets have come and warned and said, God will judge, God will take you away too. They don't believe it. So they made a deal with the Assyrians. In Isaiah 28, it's called a covenant of death, which sounds bad, but they meant it like a a covenant. We made a covenant with the Grim Reaper. We're not going to die. We made a deal. We won't die. And we got this other deal. We're in Jerusalem. This is the temple place. This is the temple city. We're in the shadow of the temple. God isn't going to come against God, Right? I mean, if anything's safe, it's right next to the temple. That's safe. 
That's where God is. God doesn't go against God. But the prophets kept warning, saying, no, God's going to come and destroy the city, take you away. They didn't believe him. So Isaiah 28 is God saying through Isaiah, judgment is coming. I will wipe this place out. The temple and the city will be destroyed, and I will lay a stone, precious stone, a sure foundation. That's when we get this quote that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2. But we can go further. We can say that Jesus is a sure foundation, but he's also a crushing rock. That's how Daniel interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a giant figure made of brass and other big, solid, big, good things, and, but it had feet of clay. Daniel the prophet is called in to understand what this thing is. And Daniel says that this figure, King Nebuchadnezzar, is you, your kingdom, and all the kingdoms of this world wrapped up. It looks strong, it looks big, it looks glorious, but it has feet of clay. And also in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream was that there was this stone. And this is how Daniel puts it. A stone was cut by no human hand. Not an ordinary stone. A stone from heaven. A stone made by God, a stone that doesn't need any shaping. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold all together were broken in pieces. It became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. That's his kingdom. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. Now that's some big stuff. It's symbol-laden kind of language, no doubt. But it's talking about something that didn't happen in Daniel's time or in the Old Testament time at all. Keep that in mind. A stone that will crush all governments, all opposition, and will become a great mountain that fills the earth. Jesus talks similarly in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable of a landowner who has wicked workers. And when it's time for harvest, he sends out messengers to the lazy workers. And the workers actually kill the messengers. So the landowner sends out some more messengers. It's time for the harvest. And they kill them. So the master thinks, I'll send my son Surely they'll receive my son. Surely they'll hear and heed my son. But they kill him too. No doubt it's a parable describing what's happening in Jesus' own time. The religious leaders have been sent, God's own son. And like the prophets of old, they're going to kill him too. Right after that parable, Jesus says, Have you never read in the scriptures... And then he quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, Jesus said, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone or trips, 
stumbles on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. But wait, there's more. Kind of like an infomercial. Wait, there's more. Peter taps into this whole tradition here when he preaches in Acts 4. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's again quoting Psalm 118. And then he adds, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby which you must be saved. Jesus is the only cornerstone. He's the sure cornerstone. And you either stand on him and you're saved... Or you trip over him and are crushed. Or you push against him and eventually it falls on you. First Peter 2 has some rich ancestry, we could say, in the Bible, doesn't it? Third, Jesus is the cornerstone, so come to him. Come to him. That's how the passage began. As you come to him... Don't reject him. Don't ignore him. Don't stumble at him. Come to him, the cornerstone. Scripture gives us many pictures, many words and phrases to describe what it's like when we first become Christians, when we receive Jesus, when we begin to follow Jesus, when we have been converted, when we get saved, we sometimes say. I'm already using some of those descriptions just in introducing it. But Peter has given several just in chapter 2. He says in verse 3, If you've tasted, the Lord is good. Becoming a Christian is like beginning to taste the Lord is good, not bitter. It's like verse 6, it's believing. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The same in verse 7. The honor is for you who believe, trust. It's like being called out of darkness. Verse 9, you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And in verse 10, it's like receiving mercy. You've received mercy. It's mercy and you receive it. You don't earn it. Mercy. Not treating us according to our sins, but like the Old Testament says, like burying them in the depths of the sea, or like putting them on the other side of the earth, or we would say maybe today, like balling them up and throwing them to Pluto. Come to him. Come to him is one way of describing what it means to become a Christian or how we do it. We come to him in part knowing that we're not right now with him. That's the first step. You have to acknowledge that You're not right with him. You're separated from him by your sin. He's a just and holy God. He doesn't look upon sin. We come to him seeing our need for him, but we come to him believing that he's a balm, a medicine, a healing for our dilemma. We come to him laying ourselves on him, the cornerstone. We stand on the cornerstone, not on other things. We come to see him as precious, like verse 4 says. The Lord sees him, the Father, as precious and chosen. Coming to him means we see him as precious, not just helpful or good or beneficial. Coming to him means that there's a confidence so that, like verse 6 says, we wouldn't be put to shame in him. We believe he's worth 
having all your eggs in this one basket. He's the singular cornerstone. There is salvation in no other. So don't trip over him. If you do, you will stumble into an eternal demise. Don't don't reject him. All who reject him will be crushed by him. Don't build on another foundation. All other building and all other foundations are as sinking sands. Remember that parable that Jesus taught in Luke 6? You probably know it if you've never read any part of the Bible. There's a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And then a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And one house stays, the other one doesn't. Well, Jesus is that rock. What are you building on? What things do you stand on? What are you counting on? What are you relying on? At the end, when you breathe your last, what is it you'll claim? What is it you'll, you'll hope in? Is it just hope in general? Is it just goodwill? Maybe I've done enough. Maybe the good will outweigh the bad. There's no other cornerstone. Everything else is shifting sand. Jesus is the chosen one, the only one. So when you give up trying to stand on all these other shaky things, stand on him. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. You're not weary and heavy laden yet? Well, then just keep trying to find something solid to stand in and stand on out there. Let us know when you're tired. We want to read some Bible to you. The cornerstone is perfect and it's true. It's approved by God. God has said this is the cornerstone. And it's sure, it's level, it's secure, it's settled, it's big and it's heavy and it ain't moving. And the cornerstone defines the rest of the building. It determines the rest of the building. It constrains in a good way the rest of God's plan. Doesn't this passage, Christian... By implication, confront fear and doubt. It feels like much of life isn't standing on anything solid, doesn't it? But we are people who believe that our eternal destiny is standing, is is rooted in, is, is firmly placed upon a cornerstone rock that isn't moving. It's a sad thing when I... Trust him for my soul, but don't trust him for tomorrow. It's a sad thing when I think my eternal life is secure, but I don't want my calendar or my to-do list or my health. We have a sure cornerstone, not just for our salvation, but for our lives and all of life. Stand firm. The fourth thing we see is that Jesus is the cornerstone. So come to him as a new people. As a new people. Verse 5 hinted at that, that you yourselves are like living stones, people as stones. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Being built up as a spiritual house. Verse 9, all kinds of descriptions here about this new people that, that Jesus is making. A chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And in verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, you were not the people. 
but now you are God's people. Once you didn't have mercy, but now you have mercy. Don't forget Peter's first century audience here. Remember, Peter is writing to first century Christians who were persecuted. They were cast out. They were strangers. They felt strange. They felt all the more day by day like they were strangers in a strange land, and yet it was their hometown. Feel familiar? But in Christ, they stand on the cornerstone. It's sure, it's settled, it's perfect. And Peter would go on in this passage of 1 Peter 2 and into 3 to call this church, these people, these churches, to some very hard things. He'll tell them to subject themselves to ungodly governments, to honor the emperor. He'll tell them to serve and honor non-Christian masters, jerk bosses, jerk husbands who aren't Christians. He'll tell wives to serve them and honor them that they might be one and be one without a word. These are hard things. But, for, but first, before he gets to those hard things, he, he talks up their privileged status, doesn't he? He, he talks up their lofty calling. And we're, we're right to do both of those, to acknowledge our high and hard calling for certain things, but, but to be empowered by our high and lofty privilege of being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, his people, a new people. They're privileged beyond measure, but, but not in any kind of hierarchical way. Notice how flat this all sounds. Peter's writing as an apostle, but he's writing as one of them. And he's saying we're all a part of this chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're a people for his own possession. So flat as he writes that. It's all ours equally. Based on grace, not based on ethnicity. Based on grace in our confession of faith, not based on degrees of spirituality. Now, it might seem like a picky point, but I can't help but point out something. It sure seems to me that this would be a good place for Peter to tell us that though Christ is the cornerstone, he is actually now Christ's representative on earth. That he is Christ's vicar. And from him and after him will flow a an unending succession of successors who kind of mediate between God and his church, who speak for God infallibly and represent him singularly. Now, Peter has a place for leadership. He, he believes in elders. He writes in 1 Peter 5 about elders. But even the apostle Peter wrote to these elders as a fellow elder. Wow. Yeah, he's an apostle, but remarkably, you don't see anything more than that here or anywhere. What he's saying is that God is making a new people. Together, they are being built up, and he's part of it. Together, they're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Come to him as a new people, fifth of a new temple. Come to him as a new people of a new temple. 
Verse 5 says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter's saying there is a new temple afoot. It's a living temple. The temple of old, the temple in Peter's day, Jesus' day, that was actually, as Peter writes this, only a few years away from being destroyed in A.D. 70. But the writing was already on the wall. And long before Peter writes this, you see, whether it stands or falls as a structure in A.D. 70, its purposes have died. So John 1 says that Jesus tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. The tabernacle is here. The promise of God's presence going global and glorious. It's here. That's why in John 2 he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up anew. I'll make a new temple. I am the temple. This new temple is now a person. And yet also it's a cornerstone and he's building a temple. He's also a builder. And he's adding to his temple with people. Living stones. It's like he's making a, a physical structure, but he's mixing metaphors here. And so the people... It's like they're being stacked one on top of another, making up an edifice of God's presence for his glory. The temple is built with people, not an institution, unless you call the church an institution, not a building. Now there are no holy places. He is everywhere. He's in us. We're now the temple, 1 Corinthians 6 says. And it is being built. It will be built. It is being built. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's building it successfully and surely, even if sometimes it seems like he's building it slowly. I don't know about you, but I crave revival and pray for revival in my own heart and in our church and in our city and in this country. And I pray for God's glory to one day cover this earth like now waters cover the sea. How long for the day when there'll be no need of the sun for his glory will just fill all of new heaven and new earth. I can't wait. And so I can get pessimistic. I can think, has he forgotten to keep building? Or why is he building over there? Not over here. But he said, I will build my church. He will build it. He's the builder. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sometimes he does it in a microwave fashion. Sometimes he does it steadily. Sometimes it looks like it's dry, but it's still sure. And part of this building is him putting us together. Stones go together. They're made to be put on top of another. They're made to go into a wall. We don't, as Christians, just go together in some ethereal or mystical or heavenly sense only. But we go together like this, like church. We go together like Acts describes of relationships and and doing things together in meals and hospitality and We go together like the epistles talk about. Like, hey, you two ladies, Philippians 4, get along. And you, help them out. Get along, you two. 
Peter tells us, love one another with sincere, brotherly, earnest, pure, and hearty love in chapter 1, verse 22. So, so don't be a floating stone. All living stones are attached to Jesus. They're attached to each other. Get attached. Join. Connect. Get in a community group. Meet together. Meet together like this. He's making us, don't forget, into a, a place for his presence. We We go together in part because we want more of him, not just because we like each other. We meet together like this in part because we want more of him. Yeah, we have him all week, but the living stones come together are making up a spiritual temple. And what's the temple? The temple is the place of his presence. He dwells in the midst of his people. He inhabits the praises of his people. He's adding to the temple one by one. Each salvation and baptism and membership class, one by one, he's adding to the temple. And he's also shaping the living stones into, well, into the image of the cornerstone. In accordance with his perfection, he's lining us up. He's knocking off rough spots. He's smoothing us out. He's getting us true and plumb and straight. Okay, now two quick points. And then we'll come back to more of this at greater length next week. The sixth, come to him as a new people with new worship. With new worship. Verse 5 said, your priests offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices. Not like the sacrifices of the old covenant. In one place, during one schedule, this this action-oriented thing, do this, lift this, burn that, put that over there, cut this, drag that, hand here. Now, sacrifices are, well, when we come together like this, that's worship. And when we worship in all of life, the temple now is this living, moving, breathing thing. So worship doesn't just happen on Sunday morning when we come together or in the car when we're really excited about a new praise song whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Not the sacrifices of old, but like Romans 12 says, with your whole body, lay it on the altar every day, ongoingly. Or like Hebrews 13 says, spiritual sacrifices are like doing good and sharing with those who have need. Really? That can be worship? That can be temple sacrifice worship? Acceptable to God? Yes. Hebrews 13. The praise of our lips is a sacrifice of praise to him. Really? But I don't sing well. It didn't say that though. It just said the praise of our lips is a pleasing sacrifice to him. Even those little things we could call them are now worship things. They're temple things. They're consecrated, sanctified, set-apart things for his purpose. Lips now are not my own, but they're part of his possession. I use them for his glory. And little things can be acceptable to God, but only because they're through Jesus Christ. They're acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Seventh, we've been talking about a new people, a new temple, new worship, And a new priesthood. 
In verse 5, he talked about this holy priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices, part of a spiritual house. In verse 9, one of the descriptions he gave there, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. What does he mean when he says that we Christians are priests? We're part of a new priesthood. Well, the priests of the old covenant were near to God, right? They lived and worked in the temple. They had direct access to God. They mediated on behalf of the people to God. They went to God for the people's sins. Now, in Christ, he's our mediator. And so we go right to God. We go right to him. No mediation. None of us. We're all priests in that regard. We're priests in another regard. We represent him to the world. The one way we mediate for him is we mediate his his message to the world. You say, really? Is that in the Bible anywhere? Yeah, look, it's in verse 9. It's the next verse. You're part of his own possession. You've been the part of this royal priesthood. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're now his heralds, his messengers. His priests are now preachers. And we're all preachers in that regard. And we all go with this message. He's excellent in his mercy. He calls out of darkness into light. Stand on the stone, the only stone that is sure and secure and immovable because it's big and it's solid and he's powerful and he's unchanging. Jesus is the only acceptable cornerstone. Everything else is sand. Everything else is light and trite and empty and weak. So don't reject the stone, the true stone. Don't push against it. Don't run from it. Don't plug your ears and run away and pretend it's not there. Jesus said, Daniel 2 said, Isaiah said, Psalm 118 said, Acts 2 and Acts 4 all said, the stone will crush you. It'll crush you. You run from it, you push against it, you hide from it, you pretend it's not there. It's a stone that will crush you. But because big stones can also be... Stand on it. Christian, keep standing on it. 